0: Thank you so much, Joel, for just how you've led us tonight. Thank you, Richard, and Jenny, and Heidi, and Ruth, and Andy. It's been really good. Uh, I'd like us to pick up from where we left off this morning. Uh, We're going to spend most of our time in Exodus chapter 41. If you have a, a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn there. It's page 71 in the Bibles in the pews. But let me ask you a question as we start. I like questions. Uh, Thank you for discovering that about me. But have you ever walked out of one tough, difficult situation and then walked straight into another one? Well, I reckon that the Israelites had a sense of that in Exodus 14, a kind of out of the frying pan into the fire feeling. Because life in Egypt was bad. It was appallingly bad. But they had escaped that. Thanks to God and his dramatic intervention into their lives and into their bleak situation, after ten devastating plagues, their oppressors, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, had given in and had just let them go free. All 600,000 plus of them. But in a matter of days they found themselves in what looked like and probably felt like an even greater mess. Standing in front of them was the sea and bearing down upon them was the Egyptian army sweeping in for the kill. They were, if you like, caught between a rock and a hard place. And Pharaoh had clearly changed his mind or to be more accurate, God had hardened his heart yet again. And so that caused Pharaoh to round up his troops and to set off in hot pursuit. And eventually they caught up with the recently liberated Hebrew slaves. And so what was going on here? Well, let's be very clear. And Joel has really helped us in this. God had led the Israelites to this particular place. And this point in time, Exodus 13:16 clarifies that, so God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea, and in addition, God was present. Now, not in some vague kind of a way. God was actually there, as a physical presence. The Bible says that by day He was ahead of them as a pillar of cloud and by night. He was in front of them as a pillar of fire. So they were in this place. And they were facing these significant obstacles because God, and this is what Joel has been sharing with us, God had brought them there. And although there are times in our lives when we find ourselves in tight spots because of our own poor choices and our own wise decisions, this was not one of those times. These people had been obedient. They had followed God's leading. And I don't want to make too much of this or say something irrelevant to the text, but I think it's probably worth recognizing or restating a recurring reality of Scripture, and that is that obedience to God and a willingness to follow doesn't always mean you're going to have it easy. Being obedient to God, being willing to follow Him, isn't going to mean you're not going to face difficult circumstances. God sometimes takes us into environments because he's working out his purposes in our lives for reasons that God is clear about but actually which leave us initially scared and confused. And this, for me, is a prime example of this. The purposes of God in these moments are actually clearly spelled out. God is clear on what He's doing. He says this And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Here's God's purpose. But I will gain glory for myself. I'll be honoured through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And last week, as we looked at Exodus chapter 7 and 11, we discovered that God's purpose in the ten plagues was to let pharaoh and everyone else know who he was and therefore you kind of think were the 10 plagues not enough was there still some doubt is this next event this red sea episode not a bit excessive why was this needed And those, I think, are good questions. They're fair questions. After all, the firstborn in every home in Egypt had lost their lives. Was further loss of life really necessary? But then as you engage with this text, you discover that actually Pharaoh's persistence is unrelenting. He, in a sense, is digging his own and his army's own grave. He was given the chance to end the conflict, but he couldn't let go. He couldn't acknowledge God and just step back. And so he continues to stand against God and stand against the people of God. And therefore God has to dramatically end all further negotiations. And God has to establish his reputation in no uncertain terms. And for many people, there is a very real tension here, and it is something we touched on last week, this tension between God's love and God's mercy on one hand, and yet God's righteousness and God's judgment on the other. But the reality is that evil must be judged. And something has got to be done about it. God being God cannot just turn a blind eye, cannot overlook it. Miroslav Volf uh, writes about this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Now, it's not about this story specifically, but it is about this issue generally. And I, I think what he says in that book is really interesting. It's quite provocative, and it certainly gets me to think of things in a kind of fresh way. A non-indignant God or a non-aggrieved God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception and violence. But God will judge. Not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it is not because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. It's an interesting perspective. We apply it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh resisted and he kept resisting right to the end. And therefore evil had to be dealt with. And it had to be dealt with decisively and in no uncertain terms as it was here. But let's not go there yet. Because back to the story. Because although God is absolutely clear on what he's doing, clear on his purposes, I will be honored in this. I'll be honoured through Pharaoh. I'll be honoured through the Egyptians. The people, the Israelites, are scared, senseless. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And I think it's really interesting that when they looked up in these moments, they didn't immediately see the pillar of cloud. They didn't immediately see the pillar of fire that was always in front of them. But instead, they now saw and were consumed by their circumstances. They lost their focus. Although God was there with them, physically there with them, they took their eyes off him and got scared. And it's a bit like Peter during the walking on the water incident in the New Testament. But who could blame the Israelites? I mean, humanly speaking, this looked ominous. And although God was there, and although God had done so much for them already, this particular situation, these specific circumstances didn't look good, and so fear kicked in. And it's a reality that we all must deal with. Because we all get scared from time to time. And if we're honest, I think we can identify with these people because even though we sit in here this evening as a church and as a community of Christian people, even though we know that God is always with us, we believe that God is a constant presence, that he never leaves us, that God, to quote the psalmist, is an ever-present help in times of trouble, although we know all of this, I still get scared at times. I still lose focus. I still worry like mad in certain contexts. And so here in this place, as God's people look around them at their circumstances, they are terrified. And how they respond is disappointing. But it's not surprising. They turn on Moses. And using a bunch of quick-fire, sarcastic questions, they voice off to him. Weren't the cemeteries large enough in Egypt so that you had to take us out here in the wilderness to die? What have you done to us taking us out of Egypt? Back in Egypt, didn't we tell you this would happen? Didn't we tell you leave us alone here in Egypt? We're better off as slaves in Egypt than as corpses in the wilderness. And there was a hint of truth in their comments. Because you'll remember that after Moses and Aaron went to see Pharaoh for the first time, Pharaoh reacted badly. And he insisted that from now on they've got to collect their own straw, but still produce the same volume of bricks. And as a result, the Israelites wanted God to judge Moses and Aaron. They actually said, you know something? You have made us Moses and Aaron. You have made us obnoxious to the Egyptians. And so their sarcasm and their complaining had a reference point. But the reality is these people did desperately want out. They hated Egypt. They were miserable in that place. And we know that because of something God said to Moses at the burning bush when he said this. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. The people wanted out and they got out. But at the first sign of difficulty, the first sign of hassle, rather than trust God, rather than respect their leadership who had done so much for them and brought them so far, they started pointing the finger and complaining. And as you read the rest of the story and subsequent chapters, you discover this is actually their default response in similar situations. It happened in Exodus 15, and I quote, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? It happened in Exodus 16 when the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron because they thought they're going to starve to death. And it happened in Exodus 17 when again they grumbled against Moses for bringing them out of Egypt and making their children and livestock face dying in this place. Whenever things didn't go their way, whenever they faced challenges, whenever their backs were against the wall, what did they do? They whinged. They became constant, compulsive, chronic complainers. And it must have been really hard to listen to. For Moses, for Aaron, and for God. And I actually remember speaking about this here at Windsor back in February 19, or no, sorry, 2005. Not 1995. (laughs) Complaining Does a whole lot of things. A whole lot of things. It does your head in. Complaining sucks the life clean out of you. If you have to listen to it all the time. It grinds you down. If all people do is whinge. But complaining also reveals a lack of trust in God. Do you know, God had done so much for these people by Exodus 14. And he would continue to do amazing things for them in the chapters that follow. God had proved who he was. God had showed these people, you can trust me. But either they just kept forgetting or else, do you know something? We doubt God you can actually do that again. And so at the first sign of trouble, whenever the going got tough, they didn't turn to God. Instead, they shifted into great mode rather than recognize who god was rather than recall what god had done for them they allowed the immediate the here and now to become everything and whenever the here and now doesn't look that good you tend to start to complain and if they just expressed their concern then that would have been perfectly okay. Totally understandable given their circumstances. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to share your concerns regarding a situation. Regarding other people. Share your concerns. But picking up on Philippians 2, and maybe I just take the Bible too literally. But picking up on Philippians chapter 2 and Paul's advice to Christians, do everything without complaining. But back to the story, which is countercultural, I know. Because we do exist in a culture of complaint. But back to the story, because look at how Moses responds. And I think this is brilliant, verse 13. Because it must have been very tempting for Moses to come back at the sarcasm. For Moses to have a go at the negative attitude. He must have wanted even to defend himself against their totally unfair accusations. And yet, as a wise leader... He speaks powerfully into their fear and their confusion and their uncertainty. And he says these three things. He says, listen, guys, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see how God's going to deliver you today. And when you think about it, those are not only inspiring things to say, encouraging things to say. Those are also amazing declarations of faith. You see, Moses doesn't appear to have been told in advance what is about to happen with regard to the whole parting of the sea thing. And so as he looks at the Red Sea in front of him, and as he looks at the advancing Egyptians bearing down upon them, his confidence in God is truly remarkable. Moses, unlike the Israelites, had clearly learned to trust God, and therefore he was able to say to the frightened Hebrew people, the Egyptians you see today, you see that army that are bearing down upon you, you will never see them again. How did Moses know that? Moses somehow had a sense that God would not abandon them. Not now, not in this place, but instead that God would do something despite the fact that humanly speaking, things, the situation, their circumstances, the presenting problems looked menacing. And that's a credit to Moses, but it's a huge challenge to me. Because how often do I allow what I am looking at, what I am faced with, what I am frightened by, how often do I allow those things to dictate my response, my attitude, and my mindset? Rather than just say, okay, God, I trust you in this situation. I trust you. Everything around me is falling apart. Everything looks ominous. But I'm going to choose to trust you. And I'm going to look to you and find my hope in you. And Moses reflects a deep faith. And he assures the Israelites, listen, God's going to fight for you. And then he says this, you only need to be still. Now being still in the face of adversity makes no sense. It's not natural. But I think Moses was urging the people to just listen, relax. Just let God be God. Trust God. Reflect on what God can do in the face of what you can't do. Develop an inner calm which doesn't come from a lack of troubles, but instead is derived from a steady, deep reflection on the way God has acted and intervened to date. And it's a bit like, in fact, it's a lot like this advice from Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. And that's probably something we all, I know I need to hear this and I need to embrace this. So that whenever we face difficulties and wrestle with issues, that what you actually do is learn to be still. Not because of some self-made confidence. Not because you're the most composed person there is in the face of disaster. Or because, hey listen, I've seen it all before. But the reason is because you know God. Like you passionately, deeply, really know God. You don't just know it intellectually, but you know it practically. Practically spiritually, emotionally. You need only to be still, said Moses. And then it happened. God fought for the Israelites, just as Moses had promised. And using the basic components of creation... Pillar of cloud, fire, wind, water, dry land, light, the cover of night. God divides the sea to let the Israelites walk across. God throws the Egyptian army into total confusion. God causes the wheels of their chariots to come off. God forces them to retreat because they recognize that God is fighting for them. And finally, God causes the walls of water to fall back into place so that every single Egyptian is drowned. Not... One of them, says the text, survived. And that day, as it says in Exodus 14.30, God saved Israel. On that day, salvation and destruction came together. The sea of protection from evil was also the sea of destruction for evil forces. God saves, God judges, that is our God. And as the Israelites look out across the seashore and all they see are dead bodies washed up is what it says. But more than seeing dead bodies, what they see, and this is the critical point, is they see the power of God. Which leads to this response that they fear the Lord. And they put their trust in him. Now this is a different fear from verse 10. This is a very, very different fear. This was an awe-struck, overwhelmed sense of wonder at what God had done. This was a deep respect. And it prompted what? See, whenever you reach that place where you really fear God. And you're awestruck by an overwhelming sense of wonder. Do you know what your only response is? Worship. Worship. And that's all these people could do. And so they just sung their hearts out. They just sung their wee hearts out. And Exodus 15, most of Exodus 15 is the song they sung. But included is this lyric. Glenn referred to it this morning. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And the answer to their questions obvious. No one. No one's like you, God. The crossing of the Red Sea is a story we're all familiar with. It's a story that prompts much discussion. It's a story that even generates heaps of debate. But you know at its heart what the story is? Of the crossing of the Red Sea is all about. It's about transition. Transition from fear to awe. From doubt to faith. From cries of despair. To shouts of joy and worship. And my hope and prayer is. That we will make those transitions. And whenever we find ourselves. Up against it. And hemmed in. Fear to awe. From doubt to the faith. And from God, where are you? To God, there's no one like you. And I'll simply worship you.